I see Theopolis as the beginning of a movement within the church to help the church further mature into the change agent in the world that God has called her to be. Theopolis helps us to read the Bible in all its glory as God reveals himself in the epic story of warfare and feasting, of self-sacrifice and marriage, of redemption and consummation. It teaches us to worship in harmony with the eternal worship around the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. And it motivates us to influence the culture around us with the good news of the victory of our Lord Jesus overall. Some 500 years ago, William Tyndall commented to a friend that he wanted to cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than his educated friend. Well, I want to partner with Theopolis to cause the shade tree mechanic to know more of the scriptures, more of the worship around the throne of God, and more of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We really appreciate that word from Ted, one of our Theopolis partners. This is the end of our fiscal year here at Theopolis, and we are looking to add a few dozen more partners to join us in our work of biblical, liturgical, and cultural renewal. To find out more about what benefits there are to being a Theopolis partner and to sign up, you can click the link down there in the show notes. Theopolis is entirely donor-funded, and so we truly cannot do this work without you. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the Psalms of Ascent with James Jordan, and here he's going to be walking us through Psalm 131. If you are listening to this podcast on Friday, the day that it's released, this is the last day of our t-shirt sale. To order your own Theopolis t-shirt, just click that link down there in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 131. Evening Psalm is number 131. It's interesting that this follows number 130. Sometimes the Psalms are in order and sometimes they're not, but after all the inner tribulation distress described in Psalm 130, we come to a Psalm which speaks of inner peace and composure. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are mine eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult or marvelous for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rest against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Obviously, there's an infinity of truth here, but how much we want to go into in our meditations on the Psalms, I'm not sure. It's difficult to combine a lesson on this one with either the one before it or after it because they're both so long and so involved. But this is one of the simplest of all songs. I spoke this last weekend in Opelousas, Louisiana, on worship and hymnody, and one of the things I tried to encourage the people there to understand, as we have a principle here, of singing hymns that resemble the Psalms in their character, and in avoiding hymns like the last 100 or so in the Trinity Hymnal, which are not very much like the Psalms in the way they're written or in the way their theology is put together. And so the question came up, well, is it wrong to have very simple songs or even children's songs 
And I said no and pointed them directly to Psalm 131, one of the simplest and least theologically complex of all the songs that God saw fit to give us as his standard of worship. This is a song of ascents, sung again as we assume, as the people would walk toward the three times a year feasts in Israel. And of course next week when we get to Psalm 132 we have very much of a climax to the Psalms of Ascent as the ark is taken up, and we sang about that tonight. But here is a very quiet psalm, a psalm of David. David was a man who had to deal quite a bit with frustrated ambition. He would have known what it was like to have had to compose himself in the midst of difficulty. The psalmist starts out by saying, David starts out by saying, O Lord, my heart is not proud, or my eyes haughty. This is describing pride. His heart is not proud, nor are his eyes lifted up or lofty. That's an expression that is used for the way pride or arrogance expresses itself in the eyes as they assume a height and look down on the persons around. Then having confessed that his heart is no longer proud, he also confesses that he's not guilty of presumption. Pride and presumption are the two things addressed. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. We might say he minds his own business, but there's a little bit more here. It's a matter of thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think, of getting involved in things that are better left to people who are in higher positions of life, perhaps more intellectual matters that a man is not gifted intellectually and should stay out of, or perhaps matters of government that a man is not gifted at ruling or has not been called to an office of ruling and should be left to others. Year after year, David was in a position of having been anointed by God and being a wise man and roaming around Israel persecuted by Saul and having to confront within himself the tendency to be proud and the tendency to want to involve himself in great matters. Surely many times David thought, Saul has sinned, I am God's anointed, so I should lift up my hand and do away with Saul and allow myself to become king. And yet we know that David didn't do that, and in spite of many opportunities to kill Saul, he took none of them and let the Lord remove Saul from the scene. So David, we may readily imagine, had to wrestle in himself with this desire that we all have to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to get involved in things that we'd best leave alone. There's a passage that all the commentators point to in Jeremiah 45. And since this is unknown to most of us, why don't we turn to Jeremiah 45 and read that chapter. It's only five verses long. Now this is a message which Jeremiah the prophet wrote to Baruch the son of Neriah, which when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah the king of Judah saying, Who was Baruch the son of Neriah? Well, he was a man who took down dictation from Jeremiah. He was Jeremiah's deacon, just as Joshua was Moses' deacon and Elisha was Elijah's deacon, so Baruch was Jeremiah's deacon. Baruch wrote down the things Jeremiah had to say and delivered them to the king. And now, apparently, Baruch is worried about things, and so a prophecy comes to Jeremiah which is to be delivered to Baruch, and it's recorded here for us as well. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest. 
I don't think that it's sinful for Baruch to say that. The Psalms are full of language like that. It's entirely proper for the righteous man to cry out to God for relief. And so God replies to Baruch's prayer, his expression of a desire for deliverance, just as he heard the cries of the people in Egypt. Thus you are to say to him, this is what the Lord says to Jeremiah, Thus you are to say to Baruch, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am about to tear down. He's about to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And what I have planted I am about to uproot, that is the whole land. The entire Garden of Eden, replanted at the Exodus, is about to be torn up. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give your life to you as booty in all the places where you may go. Now, this is simple practical advice to Baruch. Baruch, if you'd like to save your life, don't get all involved in politics, because when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, all the politicians are going to go. That's the same kind of advice that we have around here, you know, lay low and stay out of trouble. Because if you get yourself involved with the powers that be, I'm going to bring in Nebuchadnezzar, and he is going to do away with the powers that be. So, Baruch, you want to be invisible. You want to be quiet. You don't want to get involved in contesting such matters. Advice to Baruch, not to involve himself in great matters. Well, that is advice to him in a particular situation. Obviously, there are certain people who are called to get involved in great intellectual matters, like Van Til, let's say. There are certain people who were called, as Cromwell was, to get involved in political matters at a high level as Christians. But the psalmist is basically saying that he is content to remain where he is. He has learned to have a quiet and peaceable heart in the midst of circumstances and not want what he can't have. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiasticus, which you won't find in your Bibles, it's in the Apocrypha, and I've asked Ray to pass out a Xerox. This is from Ecclesiasticus chapter 3. Now, what's the book of Ecclesiasticus and why am I referring to it? Well, it's one of those classics of Christian literature. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, surely you've read The Wisdom of Ben Sirach. It's probably the finest of all the books in the Apocrypha, written by a Christian man before the coming of Christ, and it is really a distillation of wisdom from the Bible. There are some things in Ben Sirach's book, known as Ecclesiasticus, that we wouldn't agree with. The New Testament makes clearer, and yet this is one of the great classics of Christian literature, and all of you should get hold of a copy of the Apocrypha sometime and read it through. It's amazing. People read all kinds of Christian literature, and yet they don't read what is one of the great classics of Christian literature, which is the Apocrypha as a whole, and particularly this book. Now look at chapter 3, which is the left-hand column on your page, and verse 17, and we'll find more reflections from a Hebrew preacher on this subject. My son, perform your tasks in meekness. Then you will be loved by those whom God accepts. The greater you are, the more you must humble yourself. That's worth thinking about. And so you will find favor in the sight of the Lord. See, the man who's high in a high position needs to show to other people that he's humble. It's not that he has to be like everybody else, affect the common man mentality of democracy, but he must endeavor to be humble so that his high position does not give an opportunity for his prideful heart to assert itself. In verse 20, the preacher says, For great is the might of the Lord, and he is glorified by the humble. 
the Lord reserves glory to himself, he says. He shares it with those who are humble, not with those who are proud. Seek not what is too difficult for you, nor investigate what is beyond your power. In other words, know your limits. Know what you can do and what you can't do. Know what you're trained to do and what you're not trained to do. Know what you're intellectually capable of and what you're not. Don't be envious or covetous of those in positions of higher esteem. Wouldn't it be crazy if I was jealous of all those football players out there? I could never be a football player, and so it would be rather silly for me to want to be one. And yet, in life, most of us have a few things that we are a little bit covetous or envious about other people because of their position. Seek not what is too difficult for you. Know your weaknesses and limitations. Don't investigate what is beyond your power, says the preacher. In verse 22, reflect upon what has been assigned to you, for you do not need what is hidden. God has given to each one of us certain tasks to perform, says Ben Sirach. We don't need to be investigating and meddling in other people's affairs or in other affairs altogether, but to do what's been put before us. Do not meddle in what is beyond your tasks, for matters too great for human understanding have been shown you. What's he saying there? That we have the very word of God itself. We have the Bible. These are matters which are too great for human understanding. The mind of man, although it understands the word and will always understand more, will never comprehend the whole. We will only approach infinite knowledge. We will never come to it. God has infinite knowledge. We, as we grow and mature in time, we approach that, but we never come to it. And it's been given to us. Matters too great for human understanding have been shown to us. And so since we have such a great privilege, what do we need to be investigating things that God has not called us to do? Again, wisdom here. Know what you're to do and do it. Verse 24, For their hasty judgment has led many astray, and wrong opinion has caused their thoughts to slip. Then he goes on and begins to talk about the consequences of ignoring this advice. A stubborn mind will be afflicted at the end, and whoever loves danger will perish by it. You see, all during our lives there are things that come across to us from God, says Ben Sirach, that remind us of our limitations. We're going great, and we get shot down. And the wise man stops and thinks about what has happened to himself. He realizes that he was rushing into danger and that God has providentially hindered him from going over the cliff. But the stubborn mind does not learn. It says here in verse 27, A stubborn mind will be burdened by troubles, and the sinner will heap sin upon sin. The affliction of the proud has no healing, for the plant of wickedness has taken root in him. Something happens to shoot down the proud man, and he feels bad for 12 hours, and then he's up and going again. Something else has taken root in him. Pride and presumption have taken root in him. He tries for things too great for himself. And the afflictions that God brings into his life, he does not learn from. The mind of an intelligent man will ponder a parable. And an attentive ear is the wise man's desire. Water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. We have problems with that, don't we, if we take it in an absolute sense. But all Ben Sirach means here is exactly the language that's found in Exodus chapter 30, that giving money to the Lord has an atoning function, not in the absolute sense that the blood of Christ does, but it is a way of pleasing the Lord. Whoever requites favors gives thought to the future, 
at the moment of his falling, he will find support. See, the proud man, the presumptuous man, doesn't need friends. He doesn't need the covenant community. He doesn't need to be in league with other Christians. But the wise man requites favors, and thus he has friends. And in the time of his falling, he will find support. Well, we had a short song tonight, so it was a good opportunity to encourage you to get the one copy left of the Apocrypha in the book right. And maybe sometime read these classics of Christian literature and meditate on the wise words of that ancient preacher, Ben Sirach. Verse 1 of Psalm 131, then, a psalm that Ben Sirach would have sung month after month, year after year in the temple until he knew it by heart. O Lord, my heart is not proud or my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely, says David, I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. This is rather difficult to understand exactly what is being pointed to. It's one my mind sits here and has tried to figure out if there's some symbolism involved in all this because it's not immediately apparent why the child is weaned. But the commentators all feel, and I suppose that they're right, that in the context of verse 1, the child has been weaned away from that natural joy that we find in pride and presumption. We all like to think of ourselves as better than we are. We all like to try to do things that we really ought not to be trying to do. And that's like mother's milk to us. That's what we want. And yet, to quiet our souls, we need to wean ourselves from that. It's difficult to wean a child. Those of you that have had children, fathers or mothers, and have watched the process of weaning know that it's sometimes traumatic. But the weaned child, once he's gotten over that desire for the breast, can rest in his mother's arms and not try to get what is now forbidden to him. And that seems to be the picture. We can rest in the mother's arms without the natural urge to sin being there. The child has been weaned from this natural urge, and now he can rest and relax, and the urge isn't there. Now, we'll have to comment on that a little bit more. My soul is like a weaned child within me. And then he says in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Hope in the Lord. Do not hope in yourself. Don't hope in this pride. Don't hope in this presumption. See, the weaned child is free from self-seeking, and he's also freed from a false hope, from a delusive hope that is hoping in things other than the Lord. Now, this is advice to us. It's wisdom. These psalms here, the Psalms of Ascent, are close to wisdom literature at some points because they're so short and pithy, and the ideas are repeated over and over in an ascending style, which is also a second reason why they're called Psalms of Ascent. But the man who is in great distress, or the man who has a problem with pride, or a man who has a problem with presumption, or the man who has been shot down, like the man in Psalm 130, he needs to exercise himself to compose and quiet his soul. I think our tendency in situations that we get into where we might be trapped in sin is to cut ourselves altogether off from those situations rather than learn the inner discipline which enables us to stay in the midst of life and yet be immune from the temptations that are found in the midst of life. 
Now that may sound very perfectionistic. The psalm is short. It's not going into all the ins and outs of this. Surely neither David nor you nor I can sit here and say in an absolute sense, my heart is not proud because your heart is proud and so is David's. Nor can any of us say that we don't dream about getting involved in things that we ought not to, great matters, hero dreams and all the rest of it. And surely none of us can say that we are completely weaned from the natural desires of the flesh so that we can simply completely and totally relax in the arms of God without any tendency to go out and get something that we shouldn't have. This psalm is not true of you and me in the absolute sense. The only person that it's true for in the absolute sense is Jesus Christ. But because it's true for him, it's true, relatively speaking, for us. Those who practice the discipline of composing and quieting their souls can find this to be relatively true for them. Weaned from original sin, we might even say. Pride and presumption being original sin. It's possible to be relatively weaned from original sin. At the day of judgment, we will be completely weaned from that and will be able to relax completely in God's world without any threat of being drawn into temptation. So, the heart of the psalm, practically speaking, is the phrase, I have composed and quieted my soul. That's the discipline the psalmist enjoins for those undergoing difficulty, temptation, and tribulation. The need to sit down and argue with oneself about one's standing. To compose and quiet one's soul. All of us at different times have gone through great distress. Something happens and we feel very threatened. Or we catch ourselves having acted proud. Somebody says, boy, you're a proud person. Or we realize that we've cut somebody to the quick, that we didn't need to. All kinds of things. Things spill out of our mouths on occasion that hurt other people that we didn't intend and then it's too late. And we go back and we think, look at what I'm like. And then's the time to compose and quiet your soul, to read the scripture, to go through the discipline duty of prayer and meditation and become quiet before God so that you can become relatively weaned from sin. Learn to hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. That was what the feasts of Israel were about. That's why the man sings this as he ascends toward Jerusalem to the feasts. Because those feasts were the great times of rest and festivity. They were the times for the quieting of the soul. They were the times to set aside the cares of the world and to rest in the arms of God as they worshipped at the feasts. And we know the descriptions of the various feasts and how the people were to rest and enjoy themselves in the Lord. And so it's necessary to quiet and compose one's soul in this admonition was certainly suitable to those going to worship God. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.